Hey, it's Cher Ross. Hey everyone, this is Britt Lightning from, from Vixen. Vixen. And you're listening to Play That Rock and Roll with Joe K. And you're going to keep listening because he plays awesome rock and roll. Keep rocking with Joe K. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll Podcast Edition. I'm your host, Joseph K. And like the song at the start says, just call me Joe. So here's a question. Is there any group in all of music that represents the boomer experience better than the Jefferson Airplane family tree? You got your heyday in the 60s, disillusionment in the 70s, sellouts in the 80s, and totally out of touch in the 90s and beyond. (laughs) Okay, I'm coming out a little feisty today. And truth be told, I do not have time for this. Because we have a tremendous amount to talk about. Not just today, but over the following two episodes as well. See, I am starting my most ambitious project yet. Which is going to be a three-part series that looks at all of the major aspects of the Jefferson Airplane family tree. I'm talking about the Jefferson Airplane, the Jefferson Starship and Starship, and some splinter groups and solo albums as well. Now, today's episode is going to focus on the Jefferson Airplane and the first offshoot group, Hot Tuna, as well as some solo records from Paul Kantner, Grace Slick, and Marty Balin. Now, before we get started, let's establish some principal characters. The classic lineup of Jefferson Airplane is Marty Balin, Paul Kantner, Grace Slick, Yorma Kalkinen, and Jack Cassidy and also a a rotating cast of drummers, if you will. They were founded in San Francisco as part of that 60s Bay Area scene that gave us the Birds and the Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, Santana, Steve Miller, and so many others. And the Jefferson Airplane were among the most influential and most important of those bands. It was originally founded by vocalist Marty Balin. And the original female vocalist in the band was not actually Grace Slick. Instead, it was a woman named Signe Anderson. You see, when the Jefferson Airplane got started, Grace Slick wasn't even a musical artist at that point. It was seeing the Jefferson Airplane play live that inspired Grace to form a band with her husband and her brother-in-law, which would be called the Great Society. The Great Society existed from 1965 to 1966, and because they were also in that Bay Area scene, along with the Jefferson Airplane, they often opened for the Jefferson Airplane and became friends with the members of that band as well. Now, what's interesting about the Great Society is actually that two songs that would eventually become the Jefferson Airplane's two most famous hits were actually written during Grace's time with the Great Society. One was Somebody to Love, originally written as Someone to Love by Darby Slick, and the other, White Rabbit, which was written by Grace. So here, take a listen to the original Great Society's version of Someone to Love. 
see if you recognize it. still a great song and you can see why the Jefferson Airplane eventually wanted to record it themselves. I compare this band to John Kay's The Sparrow, which was a group I talked about in my Steppenwolf episode. Basically, The Great Society was a not-ready-for-prime-time Grace Slick. It was like a warm-up group for what she would eventually become in The Jefferson Airplane. Now, much like The Sparrow, no studio albums were ever released for The Great Society. They never had a record deal. But eventually, a couple of LPs made up of medium-quality live recordings would eventually hit the market after Grace became famous for being in the Jefferson Airplane. I have one called Collector's Item, and that was an album released in 1971. Now, as Grace was working with the Great Society, the Jefferson Airplane got a record deal and put out their debut album called The Jefferson Airplane Takes Off in August 1966. A song called It's No Secret was their first single, and it charted outside of the Hot 100. That said, it's one of the airplane's better songs, and I would say one of Marty Ballin's best songs. Beyond that, there's actually a couple of interesting songs on this debut record. They covered Chet Powers' Let's Get Together. And I'm going to play a clip of that. See if this reminds you of anything. Hey, people, now smile on your brother. Let me see you get together. Love one another right now. You recognize that? See, this version was not a hit for the Jefferson Airplane, but a different band called the Youngbloods covered it just a year later in 1967 and scored one of the most iconic hits of the entire 1960s. Let's see if you recognize this much more popular version of the song, which was recorded by the Youngbloods. Come on, people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together. As it turns out, quite a few 60s bands took a shot at this, but it was the Youngbloods who uh, hit pay dirt. Now, Signe Anderson, the original female vocalist, sings lead on a couple of songs, including one called Chauffeur Blues. I'm going to play a clip of that just so you get an idea of what the Jefferson Airplane's first female vocalist sounded like, and you can see what sort of shoes Grace would eventually be asked to fill. Take a listen to Sydney Anderson on Chauffeur Blues. Not bad. In fact, I would say that about the whole album. It's not a bad record at all. Maybe not essential but an interesting starting point for what would become a very good band. Fortunately for us Grace Slick fans, Signe Anderson really wasn't cut out for the music industry. Touring and the pressures from the studio was way too much for her, and she also had a child shortly after this record was put out, so 
it did not take long for her to have to drop out of the band so she could raise her kid. This left an important void in the band that had to be filled, and it was Jack Cassidy, the bassist, who invited Grace Slick from the Grace Society to join the Jefferson Airplane. Grace was ecstatic to join the Jefferson Airplane, as this was the band that inspired her to get into music in the first place, and they were far more popular than the Great Society, which, even with the two songs I mentioned earlier, they were never going to be a big name. They were probably never even going to get a record deal. So it did not take long for Grace to decide to leave not only the Great Society, but also her husband as well, and join the Jefferson Airplane. The first album she appeared on is called Surrealistic Pillow, and that was released in February 1967. It was a huge hit, number three hit album. And the two songs I mentioned earlier, Somebody to Love and White Rabbit, were released as singles. Somebody to Love hit number five on the Billboard charts, and White Rabbit hit number eight, making this Jefferson Airplane's best and also most successful album. Outside of those songs, this is a very chill album captures some of the best elements of that San Francisco hippie sound of the 60s. If you like 60s music, I think this is an absolute must-have. If you're a classic rock fan, this should absolutely be in your collection, as it is unquestionably one of the most important albums of the 1960s. And it also cemented the band as one of the most influential artists of the 1960s. So since I played a clip of Somebody to Love already, here's the proper studio version of the Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit with Grace Slick on lead vocals. Take a listen. Now, the Jefferson Airplane's third album was called After Bathing at Baxter's, and it was released in November 1967. Now, after the big hit success of Surrealistic Pillow, the band basically had carte blanche to do whatever they want. And instead of chasing hits, they wanted to put together an album of music that they liked. And this sort of speaks to how a band can react after scoring a big hit. Lots of bands chase that success and other bands see it as an opportunity to experiment. Jefferson Airplane was absolutely a band to do the latter. Now the problem with the way they went about it is that it took several months to complete, most of 1967, and it was ultimately not very successful. All of the singles landed outside of the top 40 and it's widely considered to be a drop-off from the previous album. Here's one of the singles, it's called The Ballad of You and Me and Pumil. So the title, after bathing at Baxter's, is the airplane's code for taking LSD. So this is a very druggy album, and I think it's an apt title because the music is quite aimless, and I will tell you, it's really not my thing. I don't much care for this album, and frankly, um, I don't think I'm alone in that. It's widely considered to be one of their worst from their early days. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. They followed that up with an album called Crown of Creation in August 1968. And although this album was more successful than their last one, the tension within the band was starting to rise. You know, this was a a fairly big group of six people that were starting to divvy up into factions. Drug use was now becoming drug addiction. And Grace was also starting to have affairs with the various guys in the band. Not that it's anyone's business, but she's been very public about it. Grace would ultimately sleep with every major member of the band, except for Marty Ballin. And almost all of that really happened in the airplane heyday of the late 60s. You know, again, summer of love, that sort of thing. Now, I'm not criticizing her or anyone else in the band for that, but that did factor into some of the arguments and frustrations that were starting to rise within the band. The first single from Crown of Creation was Grace's song, Greasy Heart. So I'm going to play a clip of that. This one was not a hit, and neither was the title track. In 
fact, uh, this album was sort of kept afloat by FM radio, which was starting to become more prominent. FM radio tended to play album tracks, and sometimes disc jockeys would play entire sides of records. So there was less pressure for radio-friendly singles for that side of the dial. And Jefferson Airplane relied quite a bit on FM radio, as did a number of classic rock bands, to keep their albums in front of their audiences. Now there is another song on the album which is called Triad that's worth mentioning. This one was written by David Crosby from both The Birds and of course Crosby, Stills and Nash. And the song is about a three-way relationship, which is why it was rejected by The Birds. The Birds refused to record it. So David Crosby took it to his friends, Paul Cantner and Grace Slick in the Jefferson Airplane, and offered it to them. Now Grace is an absolute provocateur, and we are going to come back to this again and again through this episode and the next two. And this is a good example of what I mean by that. Grace did not participate in three-way relationships, at least as far as I know. And she only agreed to sing the song, which was quite controversial at the time, because she saw it as an opportunity to shock audiences. And that really was her primary motivator in the heyday of the Jefferson Airplane in the late 60s, was to be shocking and provocative and to sing about subject matter that would make, you know, quote, the straights uncomfortable. So she saw this as a chance to have some fun and was happy to record it for that album. And I gotta say, Crown of Creation is definitely a step up from After Bathing at Baxter's. Now, a little piece of trivia about the Jefferson Airplane in November 1968. They played a rooftop concert for a film project in New York. Does that sound a little familiar? When I say rooftop concert, you're probably picturing in your head the Beatles and their famous performance on top of Apple Records in January 1969. And if you're paying attention to the dates I just mentioned, you'll notice that the Jefferson Airplane actually beat the Beatles to the punch when it comes to playing rooftop concerts by two months. And much like with the Beatles, the police shut that rooftop concert down. You can find footage of it on YouTube. It is very interesting. And I'll tell you one thing, actor Rip Torn did not show up at the Beatles rooftop concert but he sure got arrested at the Jefferson Airplanes concert. <laughs> and you can see that one on film, too. Now, around this same time, bassist Jack Cassidy joined Steve Winwood to play on Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child. And just because that is such an iconic song, here's a quick clip of Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child. Uh, you got Steve Winwood on organ and Jefferson Airplane Zone, Jack Cassidy on bass. Take a listen to this. Okay, it's pretty awesome, right? Jack Cassidy and Yorma Kalkinen are definitely overshadowed by the other personalities in the band, but the musicianship of those guys is quite impressive and we're going to talk about the band they put together a little bit later in the episode but before we get to that we have to talk about something controversial i was talking about this just a second ago about grace slick and her tendency to be a provocateur well we have to talk about a story where that sort of went wrong now the jefferson airplane 
made an appearance on a TV show called The Smothers Brothers in October 1968. And they performed songs from Crown of Creation. And Grace performed the songs like normal, but she came out on stage wearing blackface makeup. And then at the end of the song, she raised her fist in the style of the Black Power Salute. And to make things worse, shortly after that, she appeared on the January 1969 cover of Teen Set Magazine, again in blackface and doing the same salute. The explanations for why she did this are not great. The band's manager, Bill Thompson, said she did it to show solidarity with Olympic athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who had famously raised their fists during the Summer Olympics of 1968. Grace's explanation is less thoughtful. She said, quote, It wasn't political. Women wear makeup, and it's very standardized. You wear this color if you're this kind of person. And I thought, well, why not wear black? But it didn't work very well because I looked almost East Indian. It was just last-minute stuff. So, obviously, Grace was being intentionally provocative. But she clearly did not grasp how offensive the practice of blackface is. I don't think... Grace is a racist person. In fact, I think this was Grace attempting to be provocative and shocking. Remember, we were talking about how she sang triad, even though she did not participate in three-way relationships. She just liked to do things that she thought would shock and provoke an audience. Frankly, after a while, it gets a little immature. And if that's your only goal, you're inevitably going to do something that reflects much more poorly on you than the audience. And as much as I love Grace, I wish she never did that. It's embarrassing to look at. I think it undercuts the argument of being provocative and just makes her look stupid in hindsight. It makes her look like an airhead. But I really want to drive home that there is nothing else in her life that implies that she is a racist or holds any sort of bigoted beliefs. I don't believe she's racist at all. I think that this was an airheaded decision made on the fly by a young artist who was looking for any which way to shock an audience. And I don't think she's proud of it. She doesn't talk about it very often. Thankfully, there are no more instances of her doing anything like this. Okay, the Jefferson Airplane's fifth album, Volunteers, was released in November 1969, and the single, the title track, is one of their absolute best songs, and this one was sang by Marty. Volunteers is easily their second best record, after Surrealistic Pillow, of course. The album artwork and packaging is fantastic. It's done up to look like a newspaper, and there's lots of little jokes all throughout the cover and liner notes. It's one of those records that like justifies having an, an album collection. Fun little stuff like that you really don't see so much anymore. One of the songs on the record is called We Can Be Together, which features the word motherfucker in the lyrics, and... Going back to uh, Grace causing a commotion on TV, Grace and the band went on the Dick Cavett show to promote volunteers, and they ended up singing this song, and Grace did not censor herself, which means she became the first person to say 
motherfucker on live TV. <laughs> so you gotta love that. Like I've been saying, Grace is a provocateur. This is just another example of that. Now, the tour to promote volunteers included stops at Woodstock and also Altamont, arguably the two most famous 1960s festivals. I don't have a lot of time to get into either one, so when it comes to Woodstock, I'm going to play a quick clip of Yorma Kalkinen talking about Woodstock. This is taken from a recent interview Yorma did on the Vintage Rock Pod. And if that sounds familiar, it's because the Vintage Rock Pod is hosted by Paul Stevenson, who was a guest on this show just last year. Paul is a friend of the show, and he gave me the thumbs up to play this clip as uh, part of our look back at the Jefferson Airplane. So here, from the Vintage Rock Pod, is Yorma Kalkinen talking about the Jefferson Airplane's appearance at Woodstock. We have to mention Woodstock. I've spoken recently to, to Cosmo from Credence and sure. to uh, Rick Lee from 10 Years After, who also played there. So I'd like to get your yeah. thoughts and your memories and your recollections on, on everything that happened in that crazy, magical weekend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the, you think about Woodstock, and obviously it's one of the major iconic events of, of my generation. If you think about Woodstock, the way that the way it was for actually working the gig, if, if we had a gig like that today, it'd be this gig sucks because it was rainy and all kinds of stuff happened. But you're right. In that time, it was magical. You know, yes, we were backstage, but that those were days of zero amenities. You know, nobody was yeah. talking about the brown items back then. If you had a toilet, it was a big deal, you know. So by today's today's standards that, you know, as a gig, you go, I don't know about this gig. But there was magic in the air. I mean, all that stuff that happened, possible to really describe to somebody that wasn't there. And you see the movie, I mean, it's huge crowds of people and stuff, and the energy that comes off a crowd like that is unbelievable. Absolutely. And did you get to do much mingling backstage? Because obviously there was huge delays and everything like that, wasn't there? Was there all the bands just milling oh, about? And Yeah, exactly. Just milling about. And one of the things that I always found amusing back then and even today, it, a lot, a lot of, a lot of the, the, the bands from, from, uh, from England, etc., that came over were much more professional musicians than we San Franciscans were in a lot of ways. You know, the way they dressed, their clothes. Like I remember there was this gal that made clothes for... Uh, Jeannie the, uh, the Taylor made clothes from the English bands. It was a friend of Paul's, and she looked at us and she went, "You guys are like farmers and freaks." Uh, you know, it's just we were just so casual about all stuff, and the and the English guys were so much more professional, obviously, especially for us guys that came out of the folk world. But once again, hanging out back then in the states in the sixties, there was none. There was none of that kind of swing and dick thing that sort of happens sometimes with with egos and whatnot, and and. And yes, partied a lot together. <laughs> That's that both funny and also very interesting. And it's a great interview, by the way. Uh, I would definitely recommend uh, checking out Paul's interview with Yorma. Now, Woodstock is romanticized as this incredible high point of the 1960s, uh, sort of the same way that Altamont is presented as the end of the 60s, the, the lowest point of the 60s because it's when the, the hippie scene and everything goes bad. And as far as the Jefferson Airplane was concerned, that's kind of true because during the show, Marty Ballin got himself knocked unconscious by one of the Hell's Angels who were doing security for that show. Marty was singing 
and he saw the Hell's Angels beating the daylights out of some fan in the audience with pool cues, and he jumped off the stage and tried to break up the fight, and the Hell's Angels ended up beating the daylights out of Marty, the very guy they were there to protect. And that was just a warning of what was to come, as later that night, uh, another Hell's Angel shot a fan to death, and that was captured on film, and you can learn all about it in the documentary called Gimme Shelter. Like I said, don't want to spend too much time on Woodstock and Altamont, but very interesting to, to see that the Jefferson Airplane was present at both the high end and the low point of sort of this romantic narrative of the 1960s. Now, after the tour, the band's lineup shook up quite a bit. For one, their drummer, Spencer Dryden, was fired from the band and replaced by Joey Covington. And they also brought in a new member, a guy named Papa John Creech, who was a violinist. Now, Papa John was a little bit older than the rest of the group, but they were just absolutely knocked out by his violin playing that they decided they just had to find a spot for him and would incorporate violin into their later albums. Now, before we get to our first break here, I have one quick story to tell. And this, honestly, might be the greatest story in all of classic rock, okay? This is the story of when Grace Slick went to the White House. Okay, so it's April 1970, and Grace Slick got an invitation in the mail for a tea luncheon at the White House. The president at this time was Richard Nixon who was the political opposite of Grace and the rest of the band. Now, how this came to be was that some years earlier, Grace had attended Finch College. Now, Finch was a finishing school, which was basically a sort of school that really doesn't even exist anymore, I don't think. It's like girls would be sent there to learn, you know, the most prim and proper manners about hosting parties and the right silverware to use and it was very high society stuff if you go to these uh, finishing schools they teach you how to pour tea and it's a specific form there's a long table you ask your best friends to be on either side there are silver urns at either side and your best friends stand there and pour and you stand you don't sit down which was very weird given what a personality grace was you wouldn't expect her to go to a college like finch well she went there because she came for money. Her parents were pretty wealthy, and she chose to go to Finch simply because it was in New York. She wanted to live in New York and not have to work, so when her parents suggested Finch, she said, sure, as long as you're paying. <laughs> so another person who went to Finch was Trisha Nixon. And that also makes sense, given that her father was president. Now, Trisha went uh, a number of years after Grace did, but when Richard Nixon was in the White House, Trisha wanted to have a luncheon for all the alumni of Finch. And an invite got sent out to every woman who went there, including Grace, and that invite was addressed to Grace Wing, because Grace Slick's maiden name is Wing. I was invited, though, to the White House because yeah. Trisha Nixon uh, was, had gone to Finch College, the same yeah. place where I went to school. So she asked all of the uh, alumni of Finch College to this tea at the White House. And my name when I was there was Grace Wing. So I got the invitation in the mail and it said, Grace Wing, you're invited to a tea at the White House. And I went, oh, they don't know who they've invited. <laughs> 
so the White House did not even realize they were sending an invite to Grace Slick. So Grace gets the invite and immediately hatches a plan and recruits a guy named Abby Hoffman to go with. Now, Abby Hoffman was quite the 1960s revolutionary. I went with Abby Hoffman and we, <laughs> we tried to get him to look regular, like kind of slick his hair back and put a suit on I me. Mean, he just looked like mafia, so you know. He... You should look him up if you want to see what an interesting choice uh, he was to, uh, to join Grace at the White House. So Grace and Abby get to the White House and they get in line to go in and they are stopped at the gate by the Secret Service. And the Secret Service turns them away saying, we know who you are, you're Grace Slick, and you're a security risk. And Grace says, well, wait a second, I have an invitation. I was asked to come here. And the Secret Service says, yes, we know, but you're a security risk and we're not letting you in. They knew something was wrong. They didn't know what, they were right. But the security came out to me and said, I'm sorry, you can't go in. I said, I have an invitation. So he went back to his little booth and he came back. He said, no, you're a security risk and you're on the FBI list. So I couldn't get in. Now the Secret Service had determined she was a security risk because they knew that she was in the Jefferson Airplane, which was a very anti-Nixon sort of band. I guess it's the lyrics, because I hadn't been arrested or anything at the time. What they did not know is that in that moment, Grace absolutely was a security risk, but not because of the music she wrote. Grace was a security risk because on her person, she had a small dosage of LSD that she had every intention of dropping into Richard Nixon's teacup. <laughs> I had um, acid in my pocket and I was just gonna sort of gesture into Richard's cup because entertainers gesture a lot and we'd be standing there and he'd get a little into tea. Her plan was to approach Nixon and to speak with big hand gestures that she was taught about at Finch and subtly drop a tiny dose of acid into his tea without him noticing, with him being distracted by her hand motions. I was a security risk because I had about 600 mics of LSD in my pocket. And, um, for those of you who don't know, the formal tees, you stand. So, like, Richard Nixon would have been standing, you meet the president, and I'm an entertainer, and I gesture a lot, and I have very little of it uh, can fit. I mean, a lot of it can get you nuts. Fits under your little fingernails, so you yeah. gesture over his cup. And then he gets from here to there. And if that failed, probably just spiking the punch bowl or something and then getting the hell out of there. Can you imagine if she had pulled that off? And then about an hour later, he'd be going, how come there's a dragon on the thing? You know, they'd have to <laughs> Well, what a down. mental image, Richard Nixon on acid. I yeah. don't know, I don't know. You just picture Nixon, just the walls would be melting around him. He would have been even more insane than he already was. I am not a crook, but I am freaking right the fuck out. <laughs> but the thing is, he's so goofy, I don't think anybody would have noticed. <laughs> but as it turned out, I don't even think Nixon was even at this luncheon. But supposedly, when Trisha heard that Grace had been turned away, she sent the Secret Service back down to go let her in. But at that point, it was too late, and Grace had already uh, left. 
Were you just teasing about loading up the guy's tea? No, I was a sick person at the time. <laughs> I was not kidding. So, with that funny little story, with that visual of Nixon high his balls, <laughs> I say it's time for our first break. So, let's move to a segment called Yesterday's News, in which I recap a couple of recent stories from the world of classic rock. Here is yesterday's news. Rock feud. Gene Simmons versus David Lee Roth. This is wild. I did not expect a new rock feud to uh, break out this year, but we got one. And it was between two artists that are pretty closely connected. Never mind Van Halen's early connections to Kiss back in the 70s. Um, just last year, in the first couple months of 2020, before the pandemic started, David Lee Roth was the opening act for Kiss. Now, COVID, of course, made them all cancel concerts for months and months. And it was only recently that Kiss recently started doing shows again. But when they got back out on the road, David Lee Roth was no longer part of the deal. So during an interview with Rolling Stone, Gene Simmons was asked about why David Lee Roth wasn't touring with them anymore. And he said something that really implied that that decision was made because they thought Roth was past his prime. So here's the quote from Gene Simmons. I don't know what happened to him. Something. And you get modern day Dave. I prefer to remember Elvis Presley in his prime. Sneering lips back in Memphis, you know, doing all that. I don't want to think of bloated, naked Elvis on the bathroom floor. <laughs> Whoa! Quite a shot there. Implying that Roth is in his fat Elvis phase. Um, those are tough words, and seemingly for no reason, but Gene Simmons is a guy who says lousy, mean shit all of the time for no reason. And the aftermath played out very predictably. Dave responded on his social media pages with an image of a baby wearing sunglasses while flipping the middle finger with the text, Roth to Simmons. A very clear message there. Now, as is typical when Gene says something wild, Paul Stanley from KISS immediately stepped in with what I call a damage control tweet, saying, I remember seeing him in the 70s with Van Halen at MSG and thinking to myself, there's a new sheriff in town. Just amazing what he has evolved into in a few short years. On stage, he's still Diamond Dave. <laughs> it's like, okay, Paul then why isn't he on the tour if he's so great, you know? Money talks. Anyway, the backlash was pretty intense, and uh, I believe it was on Gene's own birthday that he did an interview where he apologized for the remarks he made about Diamond Dave. And here, I'll play some audio of that. Here's Gene Simmons apologizing to David Lee Roth. I am so sorry and ashamed, actually, that I hurt David's feelings. I read that quote, and somehow the way they put it together, I think I said something like, nobody touched David in his prime. 
not Robert Plant, not Jagger, anybody. He was the king. And then somehow there was a segue to, you know, Elvis bloated on the ground and, you know, fat, naked, and I don't want to see that. I wasn't talking about David, but that doesn't matter. What matters is I hurt David's uh, feelings, and that's more important than the intent. So I sincerely apologize for that. I didn't mean to hurt his feelings. <laughs> do you believe him? I do not. <laughs> All right, so my next piece isn't exactly news. It's just a little announcement about our YouTube page. Concerts are back, and guess what? We here at Play That Rock and Roll are going to have concert coverage. In fact, I've been to a couple of shows already, and I've posted my reviews on the YouTube channel. So if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, please do that, and you can check out my concert reviews of the shows I've seen so far. These are the first shows I've seen since the COVID-19 pandemic began. And I can tell you right off the bat, these first ones were Jim Peterick and the Ides of March on their Cornerstones of Rock Tour. And then there was Lindsey Buckingham, on opening night of his tour, ZZ Top at Summerfest, which was part of their first tour without Dusty Hill. A bit of an unconventional choice for rock and roll, but I talked about this in a few episodes back. Miley Cyrus put out an album I think any classic rock fan would appreciate called Plastic Hearts. She put that out last year, so I made a point to see her this year because she's promoting that album. I reviewed that concert as well. And then just a day after I saw Miley Cyrus, I saw Guns and Fucking Roses, also at Summerfest in Milwaukee. That was awesome. You can hear my review of the Guns and Roses concert also on Play That Rock and Roll. And I have a couple of other shows coming up, including uh, Jim Peterick again and Genesis later this fall. Okay, final story. John Mayer releases an album called Sob Rock with a song called Last Train Home as the lead-off single. Why is this news on a classic rock show? Well, hearkening back to what I recently said about Miley Cyrus, uh, it's happened again. In the same way that I never liked a Miley Cyrus song up until her 2020 album Plastic Hearts, I have never liked a John Mayer song until Last Train Home off this sob rock album. I like the album all the way through, although Last Train Home is probably going to be my favorite song of 2021. It is another album that I think classic rock fans should absolutely enjoy. This album is a major throwback to like late 80s Eric Clapton, Steve Wentwood, or, or Toto. You know, very slickly produced, lots of synths, but still his guitar. It's very cool, very retro. And again, if you're a classic rock fan, you like 80s classic rock, I think you should absolutely check out the album, or at the very least, the single Last Train Home. So I'm happy to say I can finally appreciate a John Mayer song, because that's never been the case before this year, especially on his god-awful cover of Free Fallen. But we're not talking about that now. Let's take a quick listen to Last Train Home and get to segment two. No matter how you're working, things go wrong. My heart where it don't belong So if you're coming with me Let me know Maybe you're the last train Maybe you're the last train home Okay So in November 
December 1970, Paul Kantner released his debut solo album. This is called Blows Against the Empire, and it was billed as Paul Kantner and Jefferson's Starship. And there's a song on the album called Starship. Now, this album is built on Paul's love of science fiction and also his hardcore hippie ideology. And I wish I could say I like this record because it's pretty formative for Paul and what would become the Jefferson Starship, but I can't say I do. Uh, There's a fun little booklet in the album, but the songs just don't connect for me. This is a little too hippy-dippy for my tastes. It's still very druggy. It just didn't really register with me. And this isn't a Jefferson Starship album, by the way. This is still a Paul Kantner solo album. Jefferson Starship wouldn't be formed properly until a few years later yet. Now, Paul would join the rest of Jefferson Airplane for their sixth album called Bark, which was released in September 1971. Now, by this point, the band had fully divided into factions. Jack Cassidy and Yorma Kalkinen had formed the band Hot Tuna as an offshoot project, and Grace Slick and Paul Kantner had started dating. Now, the third faction would typically be Marty Ballin all by himself, but he had grown sick and tired of that dynamic, and he had grown sick and tired of the excessive drug use from the rest of the members of the band, and he had grown sick and tired of being overshadowed by Grace, not just on stage, but in press write-ups of the band, he felt totally out of place in a band that he had founded. So before Bark was even recorded, he very quietly quit the band, and no one from the group tried to convince him to come back. But this is not the end of the story for Marty Ballin. We will definitely be talking about him through this episode and the next one as well. A song called Pretty As You Feel was the single, charted at number 60, and the album itself eventually became a number 11 hit. And the new member, Papa John Creech, added a very interesting new element with his violin. Check out Papa John Creech's violin solo on a song here called Wild Turkey. tell you this is uh, not a bad album but it is certainly not special the band felt very aimless now that marty was gone which is quite ironic as they made no effort to convince him to stay but despite all the arguing and all the drug use and all the competition i guess marty was actually the one who was still the leader and when he stepped out nobody really stepped up to fill that void in fact The rest of the band really wanted to follow him out the door. And that sort of got started when Paul Kantner put out his second solo album, which was called Sunfighter, in November 1971. There's a song on this album called Silver Spoon, which Grace sings lead on, and it's about cannibalism. (laughs) So yet again, agent provocateur, Grace Slick, trying to shock the audience. I will tell you, I think Sunfighter is definitely better than Empire, but still not something I'm going to come back to again and again. Just to give you an example of what this record sounded like, here's a clip from the title track, which was released as a single, but it did not chart. It's you, people, it all 
Okay, let's move over to what Yorma and Jack were doing. Hot Tuna had been a band for a couple of years, but they were primarily a live act, and their first couple of albums were actually live albums. And they have so many live albums that I can't cover them all, so today I'm just going to stick to their studio releases. Their debut studio album was called Burgers, and it was released in February 1972. This album hit number 68 on Billboard, and when it comes to Hot Tuna, it should be very clear, they are not a singles band. They didn't have any hit singles, and they barely even released singles. They were at first and foremost a live band. You would want to see them in concert, and then after that, they would be an album band. They did not chase radio hits, so you can't judge them based on their lack of success on the radio. Hot Tuna is much bluesier than the Jefferson Airplane, and that speaks to Yorma and Jack's musical backgrounds. Honestly, on this record, I felt that the musicianship here was better than the last Jefferson Airplane album. The only step down, I guess, was probably the vocals, because Yorma is not as good of a singer, frankly, as Grace or even Marty. So I'll play a clip from that album. This is called Keep On Truckin'. It's cover of an old Blind Boy Fuller blues song. And it's probably one of their better known tracks. So take a listen to this. Hey, you come, baby, big ass sin. Tell what you've been doing about the shape your head. So keep on trucking, mama. Now truck my blues away. Jack and Yorma would return to the Jefferson Airplane once more in the 70s for an album called Long John Silver in July 1972. The songs in this album are mostly cast-offs from the various solo projects that everybody was working on. The title track was released as a single, and it landed outside of the Hot 100. My favorite song on the record is Milk Train, because it has a, a nice vocal performance from Grace and another good violin solo from Papa John Creech. But it's not particularly impressive. This was a commercial and critical flop. Nobody in the band really even wanted to do it in the first place. Their hearts were all elsewhere, and... This would be the final Jefferson Airplane album of the 1970s. And unfortunately, the airplane went out with a whimper, not a bang. I wouldn't even recommend the album unless you're already a big Jefferson Airplane fan. There was no formal breakup announcement. They just kind of all quietly went their own ways. Jack and Yorma committed full-time to Hot Tuna, and Grace and Paul return to their solo careers. They were working together, so it's almost like a duo career. Solo career is not even the right term for it. <laughs> and Marty was also in his solo career, but we will talk about him in the next episode. Paul Kantner and Grace Slick would recruit vocalist David Freiberg for their next album, which was released in May 1973. This one was called Baron Von Tollbooth and the Chrome Nun. The title is... Um, David Crosby's Nicknames for Paul and Grace. And the only single from the album is called Ballad of the Chrome Nun. So take a listen to this. This single did not chart. It's not bad. In fact, I would say this is probably my favorite of what I call the in-between records for Paul and Grace. And uh, this album is also important as it's the first one that David Freiberg, who had worked with the band in the past, was now brought to the front 
and became a core member of the Jefferson Airplane family tree. David Freiberg is not only still alive today, but he is still performing in the Jefferson Starship today, and he is the longest tenured member of said group. So Freiberg's an interesting guy. Again, he's going to be someone we talk about more in the next episode. Now, the last of Grace Slick and Paul Kantner's duo career stretch of the early 70s was Grace Slick's first official solo album, which was called Manhole. But again, this is the same team that had put out Paul's first three albums that we discussed. The only real impressive piece of music from this album is a 15-minute long epic orchestral track called Theme from the Movie Manhole. Grace was a big fan of epic film soundtracks, and even though she wasn't able to score a film with this song, she wrote it as if she was. And it's a very interesting piece for that reason, because you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear something like that on what's billed as a rock album. So here's a quick clip of Grace Slick's Theme from the Movie Manhole. Don't Manhole was the last of Paul and Grace's solo duo collaboration albums of the early 70s. They would eventually form the Jefferson Starship just a year or so later with David Freiberg, and they would proceed as the Jefferson Starship from there on out. But we're going to tell that story, um, like I keep saying, in the next episode. For the rest of this segment, we're going to focus on Hot Tuna. Hot Tuna released... An album called The Phosphorescent Rat on July 3rd, 1974. That was one day before Grace Slick released Manhole. And The Phosphorescent Rat is a harder rock album than Burgers. In fact, fans call this the start of Hot Tuna's metal years. And to hear some of that heavy rock, here's a clip from a song called Easy Now. Yeah, so not exactly metal, but you can see that Hot Tuna was moving away from their country folk blues roots and were trying to be more mainstream rock and roll. Their third studio album, which was called America's Choice, was released in May 1975. This is another rock album. It really reminds me of Joe Walsh's Barnstorm era, which was going on right around this same time. So if you're a fan of someone like Joe Walsh or or Rick Derringer or Peter Frampton or REO Speedwagon, Hot Tuna is probably a group that you should check out. Their mid-70s stretch is really good classic 70s guitar rock and roll, and there's a lot of great guitar work on this album. And uh, kind of a cheeky song that they actually released as a single. It was called Hit Single Number One, although it did not live up to his name chart-wise. I do think it's a good song, but it was not a hit single, in fact. So take a quick listen to the ironically titled Hit Single Number One. a sense of humor about themselves. 
and it extended to the packaging for the album as well. The album art for America's Choice is very funny. It looks like an old school box of laundry detergent, like the old Tide logo from the 70s. Sort of similar how Volunteers was packaged to look like a newspaper, and I didn't mention this earlier, but Long John Silver, I believe, was packaged to look like a cigar box. So I guess Yorma must have been the brains behind uh, that sort of fun with packaging, which I think is a lost art. Now, their fourth studio album was called Yellow Fever. It was released in November 1975. The cover art on this one is less funny. It features lots of yellow items, like a banana, cheese, corn, and a cartoon of Chairman Mao. Which, you know what? Not great. A little awkward. Did not age well. I get there's a joke there, but uh, it doesn't hold up. My criticism about the cover aside, this is still a pretty good album, because now at this point, Hot Tuna was a power trio, so very similar to Cream or the James Gang, just lots of guitar shredding. And closing out the 70s was Hot Tuna's fifth studio album called Hopcorv, which was released in October 1976. Hopcorv is the Swedish word for jumping hot dog. What you will do with that information? I have no idea. <laughs> Just a little piece of trivia there. This would be the last album of Hot Tuna's original run, as the group would split up shortly after this. Jack and Yorma had sort of gotten sick of each other, and I'm sure there was some pressure from the studio to have some more commercial success that just wasn't uh, happening, which is too bad, I gotta say, because Hopcorp is probably my favorite Hot Tuna record. This album's a little different than the previous few. It's a little less heavy and a little more melodic. So let's take a listen to their cover of Buddy Holly's It's So Easy. It's so easy to find love. It's so easy to fall in love. Yeah, not bad, right? I know they didn't write it, but they covered it very well, and the rest of this album, again, is very melodic, very enjoyable. I gotta say, I was racking my brain about why didn't Hot Tuna take off? Jack and Yorma are talented players and they had some good collaborators. I, I can only guess it was because those two guys weren't the stars of the Jefferson Airplane, so when they started this group, they just never had that same star power that the Jefferson Starship would have through the 1970s. And the other thing is, you know, Joe Walsh and Peter Frampton, like, there is no shortage of guitar rock and roll in the 1970s. So you're, you're talking insane competition and maybe Hot Tuna just wasn't able to separate themselves from the pack. That's my only theory on why they aren't more of a household name because they do have quite a few really good songs. And I'm going to play my favorite Hot Tuna song. This is from the Hopcorp album. It's called Driving Around. And it's going to take us into our next break, which is a segment called Back in Time. And that takes a look back at some of the biggest classic rock events of the last 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 years. So, again, here's Hot Tuna on Driving Around, going into our final break.
yeah, you remember that song? That was 10 years ago. Can you believe that? September 10th, 2011, Moves Like Jagger by Maroon 5 and Christina Aguilara hit number one on the Billboard charts. This is an awful track. I did not like it then. I still don't like it now. But begrudgedly, we have to admit, it was a huge hit. And I only bring it up because it was part of this bizarre resurgence that Mick Jagger had in pop music in 2011. There was um, Kesha's song TikTok and also another song called The Time Dirty Bit by the Black Eyed Peas. Both of them mention Mick in the lyrics. There was a pop song he even tried to get in on a couple of months later and we'll I think I'll talk about that in my next episode or so. But Moves Like Jagger was the biggest hit of all of them. This is arguably the the track that really broke Maroon 5 into being the pop superstars that they they have been these past 10 years. So this fucking thing started it all. Mick, of course, got asked about the song, and he said at the time, It's very flattering, isn't it? Hilarious. They asked me to come out and play with them, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Smart move, Mick. I'm glad that he has never suffered the indignity of singing this stupid fucking song with that awful band, so... All right, let's move on to a couple of big moments in classic rock history here. Okay, September 26th, 1981, Iron Maiden hires Bruce Dickinson. I only mention this date because there's a couple of <laughs> metal contrarians who are like, yeah, actually, actually the guy before was better. Fuck that. Bruce Dickinson all the way. That He is an awesome dude. We uh, sampled his Trooper Ale a few episodes back when I had my buddy Kyle on for the beer tasting. You should check out that. We talked about Iron Maiden a little bit. So if you have some Trooper laying around, uh, crack that open and let's say cheers and congratulations to Bruce Dickinson for 40 years in Iron Maiden. Okay, 20 years ago, September 11th, 2001. Terrorists attacked the World Trade Center. 9-11 affected pretty much every aspect of American life, and the music industry was no exception. The most immediate thing that happened as a result of 9-11 is that the radio conglomerate Clear Channel issued a memo forbidding affiliates from playing a list of, quote, lyrically questionable songs in the immediate wake of 9-11. Now, when you read through the list of these songs, you can see right away why they're chosen. And... Just the titles alone, you know, Jet Airliner by Steve Miller Band. They are wildly uncomfortable in the context of 9-11. And given that 9-11 was all that people could think about at the time, it actually makes a lot of sense that radio stations would take these songs out of circulation for a stretch of time. Although I gotta say, after reading through the list, I, I, I don't really understand why Ubla Di Obla Da by The Beatles was on there. It was sort of an odd thing. And then just a week and a half later, on September 21st, 2001, America, a tribute to heroes, airs uninterrupted on all major networks. This was a concert event that included performances from classic rock artists, uh, Bruce Springsteen, U2, Tom Petty, Neil Young, Billy Joel, John Bon Jovi, Sting, Pearl Jam, and Paul Simon, among an even larger list of other artists outside of the classic rock genre absolute A-listers all the way through. This was a incredible event and a great example of how music can help heal. And music did help 
the nation heal in the immediate aftermath of, of such a terrible day. So to play us out, here's a clip from that concert. This is the late, great Tom Petty singing, I Won't Back Down. Segment three, let's wrap up stories of Hot Tuna and Jefferson Airplane. So Hot Tuna had split before the end of the 70s. They had gotten back together in the early 80s for a couple of live shows, but those weren't particularly successful. They weren't back together full-time until 1986. Now this was shortly after Paul Cantler had left the Jefferson Starship. And Paul had left the Jefferson Starship in a slew of lawsuits between him and Grace and the rest of the band and that big mess is too much to talk about we'll just say Paul left on bad terms and because he was out of the Jefferson Starship he got back in touch with his old buddies Jack and Yorma and he started making appearances at Hot Tuna shows now in 1988 Hot Tuna was doing a show with Paul and given that Grace Slick had recently departed her band, Starship, they thought it would be funny to surprise Paul by inviting Grace to sit in with them for that show as well. Grace agreed, if only to just surprise Paul, and those two hadn't been even been able to be in the same room with each other unless it was a courtroom for several years. So it was sort of an opportunity to... Um, mend some fences and and resolve some some issues and it actually went over really well and all four of them had a great time at this little impromptu concert and because that went over so well the wheels started turning on the subject of having a proper jefferson airplane reunion since four out of the six original members were all getting along again well once those four agreed it would be a good idea they called marty ballin who did not have a record deal and was touring very small venues. I mean, we're talking bar rooms. He signed up pretty quick, despite his reservations about, you know, being overshadowed by Grace and, you know, the, the internal politics of the band. But they would eventually make things work, at least for one album and tour. In the summer of 1989, they released their eighth album, which was self-titled, with their classic lineup of Marty Ballin, Paul Kantner, Grace Slick, Jack Cassidy, and Yorma Kalkinen. They invited Spencer Drummer back to play drums, but he declined. So instead, they went with drummer Kenny Aronoff. And Kenny Aronoff is most famous for playing drums for John Mellencamp and, and also John Fogarty. But that dude's resume is a mile long. That is, he's one of the greatest studio uh, drummers ever. It's honestly impressive that this guy's part of uh, the Jefferson Airplane story because his resume is just unbelievable. Now the album was not a hit. None of the singles from the album charted at all. The first single is a song called Planes and it's not Grace Slick or even Marty Balin on lead vocals but instead Paul Kantner. So here's a clip of the Jefferson Airplane's big comeback single Planes. Hold his mother and father love him. Hold him and hug him whenever he needs it. Sunday, to the center of the sky. Teach him fly. 
So, I don't think this is a very good song. I think the subject matter and lyrics are bizarre. I think it's particularly weird that they went with this to be the lead-off single when Grace and Marty's voice are way more familiar to fans as the vocalist for the Jefferson Airplane. I mean, I get that their band name is Jefferson Airplane, so it's sort of cute to write a song about planes, but at the same time, that's not the sort of thing they were known for. They would make little airplane puns on their albums, but they never wrote a song about actual aircraft before now, and and now that Paul did, it just feels like uh, very dorky. I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. And and when you see some of the other songs on the album, like, for instance, Grace Slick's Freedom, or Marty Ballin's Solidarity, or Summer of Love, you know, those songs feel like much more appropriate choices for the band's identity. And instead they chose Planes, which always struck me as a little weird. Ultimately, I think it's a decent album, but I will tell you, it doesn't really sound like the Jefferson Airplane of the 60s or early 70s. It sounds much more similar to Toto, or dare I say, Starship. <laughs> and that's because at this point, the Jefferson Airplane was very slickly produced with a number of studio players. And Paul summed it up quite well in an interview he did with the Orlando Sentinel in February 1991. He said, Their approach to recording was not the way we used to do it in the old days. It was very much the modular, sequenced L.A. way of recording. It works for some people, but not for me. It just wasn't even fun. It was well done, but not very passionate. And that really says it all. Now, I like late 80s, slickly produced albums, so there's quite a few songs on here that definitely work for me. But if you're a diehard 60s era after bathing at Baxter's Jefferson Airplane fan, I don't think you're going to like this one very much. Now, the 1989 tour to promote this album went fairly well. It wasn't a huge commercial success, but the band uh, did get along. Grace has said at multiple points that she enjoyed singing with Marty more than ever before, and she felt that the tour was really helping to heal a lot of these old resentments that they had held since, like, the early 70s. Unfortunately, Marty did not appear to feel the same way. Again, he felt overshadowed by Grace. You know, there's stories of him complaining about uh, the the guys, the sound guys at concerts turning his mic down and Grace's mic up and just little ticky-tacky shit like that. And I gotta say, after, you know, absorbing all this Jefferson Airplane media to prepare for this uh, podcast, the only thing I can say in response to Marty's feelings about being overshadowed is, is simply... Uh, Dude, she's better than you. <laughs> she should overshadow you. It is that simple, you know? And that's no disrespect to Marty for his talents. He is a good songwriter. He is a good vocalist. But Grace is both of those things and better. And she's also a better front woman. And she's a better interview. She's a more interesting person all the way through. And I know it probably doesn't feel good to play second fiddle, but if you want the band to succeed, that's the formula of, ha of how it has to be. The Jefferson Airplane at its best is not equal parts Marty and Grace out front. It should be like two-thirds to a third, you know, Grace versus Marty. But that's just my own hot take on it. I guess I got a little 
sick and tired of reading about his complaints and seeing his complaints and behind the music on all this. And frankly, I don't even know why I'm talking like this to him as if he's still here. Marty died several years ago, so I don't know what I'm accomplishing. So let's move on. Now, like I just said, the tour was moderately successful, but the tour itself was fairly overshadowed by bigger reunions by bands like the Rolling Stones and the Who. And, and also Paul McCartney went back on his first major tour uh, in like 10 years. And there was a lot of other classic rock tours going on that summer. 1989 was a big year for classic rock. So Jefferson Airplane had a lot of competition. And I think this reunion really got lost in the shuffle. So coming off the momentum of that reunion tour, Jack and Yorma went back out on the road as Hot Tuna. And they also returned to the studio for a November 1990 album called Pair a Dice Found. Pair a Dice. As in a pair of dice. But if you say pair a dice, it's also paradise. So, again, a little pun on the album there. Paradise Found, released in November 1990. This album is primarily made up of covers and also collaborations with songwriter... Michael Falzarano, who would become a reoccurring uh, figure in Hot Tuna from here on out. And I gotta say, this is a really good album. Uh, I'm gonna play a clip uh, from a song called It's All Right With Me, and this one was written by the Yorma. I said this one isn't as heavy as some of their uh, mid 70s stuff but still enjoyable and you know closer to the early country folk blues records that they were doing at the very start sort of a return to form for hot tuna now i have another song from this album i'm going to play see if you recognize this Yes, this is a cover of Eve of Destruction, which was a famous counterculture hit in the 1960s for Barry McGuire, who was very much a contemporary of the Jefferson Airplane. So I think it's very appropriate that Yorma and Jack would uh, cover it here, and it's nicely done. Now, just a couple of months after Hot Tuna put out an album, Marty Balin returned to his solo career with an album called Better Generation, in July 1991. Now the title track is a self-congratulatory ode to the boomers. The boomers are the better generation. So let's take a listen to this for a moment. Yeah, we marched into the cities and our voices filled the air Armed with only good intentions Did we ever have a prayer While the old men built their war machine Men of peace were slain The blood ran through this country I'm sure a lot of millennials in my audience are probably gagging, but uh, if I'm being honest, I don't think it's a bad song. It was released as a single, but it did not chart. 
And as far as the rest of the album goes, uh, I would say it drags on a little bit, but there are definitely some decent tracks here. The only odd thing is that he included a couple of re-recorded versions of some of his better-known earlier songs, including Volunteers and It's No Secret, both from his time in the Jefferson Airplane, in the 60s, but also Summer of Love, which was on the Jefferson Airplane reunion album just two years before this one. So that's sort of odd to take up space on the record with those, but maybe he was thinking it would improve sales. Like I said, not a bad album. In fact, this is probably my favorite of Marty's solo projects. And I would honestly recommend it for any fans of Marty's Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship songs. Marty has a couple of other solo albums, but we're going to talk about those in the next two episodes. I just wanted to bring this one up here because it was released shortly after the reunion album and Hot Tuna's record. Okay, a couple of big events to close out the 90s. First, Jefferson Airplane was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996. Just two years later, VH1 aired an episode of Behind the Music about the Jefferson Airplane in 1998. And I will tell you that this is one of the absolute best episodes of that show. This is a top five Behind the Music, at least for me. I highly recommend tracking that one down. That same year, Jack and Yorma, as Hot Tuna, joined the band Rusted Root on their 1998 self-titled album for a cover of the Rolling Stones' You Can't Always Get What You Want. I think that's a very cool collaboration because Rusted Root is clearly a band influenced by acts like Hot Tuna. And then we're going to fast forward all the way to April 2011 for Hot Tuna's seventh studio album called Steady As She Goes. This is their last studio album to date. There is a female vocalist that they added on a couple of tracks named Teresa Williams, and I must say she's quite good. And much like Paradise Found, this is more country blues, more consistent with their early days as Hot Tuna, not the hard rock and roll of the mid-70s. So let's take a quick listen to the lead-off track from the album. This is called Angel of Darkness. Sweet runaway, there's no debt to pay. Angel of darkness. There's a couple of tracks worth mentioning from this album, including a re-recorded version of Easy Now, which was originally released as part of the Phosphorescent Rat, and I played a clip of that original version earlier, so if you like that song, there's a newer version of it here as well. Finally, there's a song on the album called If This Is Love, which includes some very funny lyrics. I'm going to play a clip of it now. Hopefully you get a chuckle out of it. This is love. I want my money back. I want an honorable discharge. Yeah, very corny, but it made me laugh. What can I say? <laughs> now, we are at the part of the podcast that I would normally discuss my experience with seeing these bands in concert. I hate to say it, but I never had a chance to see Jefferson Airplane, Hot Tuna, Paul Kantner, or Grace Slick in concert. Now, Hot Tuna is still active, but the Jefferson Airplane is not. And I've been oblivious about if they've come to my neck of the woods before, but I am paying attention now. If I have a chance to see them, I absolutely will. And... If I do see them, I'll post my review on the YouTube channel. So make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Otherwise, I have nothing to report about what it was like to seeing any of these bands in concert. Now, the reason the Jefferson Airplane is absolutely no longer active is because 
Grace Slick largely retired from music right after that tour ended. She lost her passion for it, plain and simple. She has spent 30 years largely outside of the music industry. She doesn't record anything. I think she's co-written a couple of songs for the current incarnation of Jefferson Starship, but she doesn't perform anything. She doesn't really make appearances. And her passion now is painting. And there's not really even any hope of seeing her on stage again because ever since she left the Jefferson Airplane 30 years ago, she has said she does not like the idea of old people playing rock and roll on stage, herself included. Now, the entirety of classic rock, (laughs) as far as the artists and also most of the fans, would probably disagree with her. But she stands by what she said. She's effectively retired from music altogether. And then frankly, uh, most of the rest of the band has is, is passed away. Papa John Creech, who played violin for Jefferson Airplane Jefferson Starship, passed away on February 22nd, 1994. Spencer Dryden, who played drums for the Jefferson Airplane, passed away on January 11th, 2005. Joey Covington, who played drums for the Airplane, Jefferson Starship, and Hot Tuna, passed away on June 4th, 2013. Paul Kantner, An original female vocalist, Signe Anderson, passed away on the same day, on January 28th, 2016. And finally, Marty Ballin passed away on September 27th, 2018. So, the only three principal members of Jefferson Airplane left are Grace Slick, Yorma Kalkinen, and Jack Cassidy. Grace is retired, and Yorma and Jack are in a band already, so there is absolutely no chance that Jefferson Airplane will ever perform again. And with that, I'm going to move on to just a couple of final thoughts here. First, and I hope I've made the case, Jefferson Airplane is historically important for classic rock. They're a big part of why the Bay Area 60s rock and roll scene is one of the greatest scenes in American music history. Their album, Surrealistic Pillow, is one of the absolute best albums of the 60s full stop. If you're a fan of 60s music, this is an absolute must-have. If you're a classic rock fan, this is an absolute must-have. Finally, before working on this episode, I never listened to Hot Tuna. And I gotta say, I regret that because I found that I liked Hot Tuna quite a bit more than I expected to. There is a lot of hidden gems in their discography. So if you're unfamiliar with them or if you haven't listened to their music, I really would encourage you to explore their catalog. Looking ahead, our next episode is going to be part two. It's going to be a retrospective of the Jefferson Starship as well as a a couple of solo albums from the people we've discussed today. Another episode we have coming up is going to be Dylan Through the Decades part three with my buddy Chris. This is going to be Bob Dylan in the 1980s. And then, of course, I have more interviews coming down the pipeline. I haven't nailed down the dates just yet, but once I have confirmation, I will post those announcements on our social media pages, so please be sure you're following us there. The intro song for this podcast is I Can Play That Rock and Roll by Joe Walsh. I have to both recommend and cite a couple of books here. First, Got a Revolution, The Turbulent Flight of Jefferson Airplane by Jeff Tamarkin. This is a stellar rock biography. It's all-encompassing. It's the entire Jefferson Airplane story. Incredibly well done. I really, really recommend um, getting a hold of that book if you want to learn more about this band. I also 
reread Grace Slick's Somebody to Love, which she put out in the late 90s. I gotta tell you, this is one of my favorite rock memoirs. Grace Slick is a very funny writer, very accessible, and quite an enjoyable read. So if you want to learn more about her, I would definitely check that out. Yorma Kalkinen also put a book out. I regret that I didn't get a chance to, but I haven't read his book, although I have uh, heard good things. And then I also have to cite the Behind the Music episode I mentioned earlier. VH1's Behind the Music episode about Jefferson Airplane is stellar. So if you like that show, definitely check out that one. Otherwise, I just want to say thanks to Cher Ross and Britt Lightning from the band Vixen for their cameo that we played at the start that's always fun. And with that, I'm going to play us out with uh, two songs. One for Marty, one for Grace. Here's Volunteers and then White Rabbit. Thanks again for tuning in. Check out some Jefferson Airplane music and keep rocking. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash play that podcast and subscribe to our youtube channel at youtube.com slash c slash play that rock and roll lots of great supplemental material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms as play that rock and roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast and finally the big ask number four please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 